0: Hey, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven feasts that God instituted for His people Israel to celebrate. It occurred in the fall of the year in the Jewish month of Tishri, corresponding with our September-October. Tabernacles was the final feast on the yearly calendar, and it was the most elaborate in its celebration. In fact, the Jews referred to the Feast of Tabernacles simply as the Feast. Jewish historian Josephus called the Feast of Tabernacles the holiest and greatest of all the feasts. This feast would be like a combination of our Thanksgiving and Independence Day and New Year's Day all rolled into one. The feast went by several nicknames. The first was the Ingathering. Israel would give thanks to the incoming harvest. Second, it was called Sukkoth or booths. For during the feast, families would live outside in shelters to recall God's provision for Israel during those 40 years that they slept under the stars and traveled through the wilderness. And then third, there was a future dimension of the feast. It looked forward to a new day when Messiah would come to fulfill his promises to Israel and to reign over all the earth. Well, John 7 occurs at this feast. The first 10 verses take place prior to the feast, verses 11 through 36, in the midst of the feast, and verses 37 through 52, on the last day, the great day of the feast. Chapter 7 reveals three attitudes toward Jesus, of his siblings, of the celebrants, and of the Sanhedrin. Well, verse 1 begins, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. You remember what provoked this? Days earlier in Jerusalem, Jesus had healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, and in doing so, he had violated Sabbath laws right outside the temple, no less, right under the nose of those uppity, self-righteous priests. Jesus attacked their legalism by claiming to be the Son of God. From his perspective, all he had done was follow his father's lead. His logic, though, inflamed their fury. They grew bloodthirsty. And Jesus had to retreat to Galilee until passions cooled down. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And of course, this required all Jewish men, 20 years old and older, to travel to Jerusalem. Thus, if Jesus was to obey the law, ready or not, he would have to go. His brothers, that is Mary's other boys, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And here the brothers get a little sarcastic. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, Mary and Joseph had other children, at least four boys and two girls. This meant that Jesus had half brothers and half sisters. By the way, he grew up in a blended family. He's lived with those dynamics. He and his siblings knew that they didn't share the same father. Could it be that Joseph's kids scoffed at Jesus? Did they doubt the idea of the virgin birth that they had heard? Did they consider it a family fable, maybe a scandal and a cover-up? Or could it be that they were just jealous? Remember, Jesus was sinless. And I can imagine the other kids getting tired of hearing Mary say, Why can't you just be like your older brother? Living in the shadow of a successful sibling is tough enough, but imagine if your big brother is God. Talk about some pressure. Whatever their reasons, Joseph's kids didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection, an interesting point. Here, though, the brothers, they give Jesus some advice as if they're his publicity manager. If he wants the world to trust in him, why not seek the largest audience possible? Go to Jerusalem. That's a big stage. The city will be crowded for the feast. It's the perfect opportunity to prove yourself. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Here's Jesus' point, and it is an important point for us. Every opportunity doesn't constitute A calling from God. Hey, just because it might make sense doesn't mean it's God's will. Jesus was prompted always by obedience, not just opportunity. He was working on heaven's timetable, which reminds me of the insurance agent who got a frantic phone call. A woman was on the other end of the line. She said, do you sell homeowner's insurance? The agent replied, well, of course I do. She replied, well, can I buy a policy over the phone? The agent replied, Well, no, you can't do that. I'll have to come to your house and you have to sign some paperwork. The lady shouted, Well, you better hurry up because my house is on fire. (laughs) It's been said timing is everything. And that's certainly true when it comes to the plans and purposes of God. I've heard it put there are three things a man can do without sensing that he's wasting time make war, court a woman, Create art. And I would add a fourth wait on God. Time spent waiting on God is never wasted. Jesus had what his bros lacked a sense of God's timing. Verse 7 continues Jesus' reply The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He went on a covert pilgrimage. Verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceived the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Even though Jesus avoided the limelight, he was still the hot topic. He was the talk of the feast. Privately, folks debated his claims and deeds, even while the Jewish officials were publicly hostile toward him. Well, verse 14 tells us, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Apparently, Jesus sensed that the time was right. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, it's not that Jesus was ignorant. It's not that he was ignorant of the Bible. What the Jews note here was his lack of formal theological training. You see, every rabbi studied in a yeshiva. Then he would serve an apprenticeship under another rabbi. But Jesus was a rabbi with no rabbi. It was said of him, while the scribes and Pharisees taught from authorities, quoting all the famous rabbis, Jesus taught with authority. There's a difference. Jesus might have lacked the proper credentials in the eyes of the Jews, yet he taught with a wisdom that was from heaven. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine. But his who sent me, the Father God, was Jesus' rabbi. Jesus wasn't man-taught. He was God-taught, the best kind. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And here's a truth that we all need to grasp. Notice, it is a willing heart, not just an inquisitive mind, that ultimately will know the scripture. Jesus says, if anyone wants to do God's will, see the desire to know has to be coupled with the desire to do. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. I think every Bible teacher should ask himself the question, do I preach to be popular or am I preaching to be faithful? Jesus was faithful in all that he said and did. Now he asked them, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Now remember, this exchange is in the temple. It's a packed house. It's feast time. All the Jewish hierarchy are on hand. They've been plotting Jesus' assassination. Now he boldly exposes their hypocrisy. He confronts them. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? See, the leaders of the Jews had put out a hit on Jesus. They were plotting this, an assassination. The problem, though, is this was unknown to the rank and file Jews. The pilgrims were blind to the brewing scandal. Verse 21 Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. He's talking about the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus wants to get into this whole Sabbath hypocrisy that was so evident among the Jews. He points out how hypocritical it was In the ways that the Jews applied these Sabbath laws. You see, the law commanded every Jewish male to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. And all the rabbis were strict about the eighth day. It had to be the eighth day. Even so, if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, that circumcision had to be performed on that day. Thus, some allowance for work on the Sabbath day was accommodated in the form of circumcision. Now, Jesus persists. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? See the hypocrisy. He's saying, you're kidding me. <laughs> you're kidding me. You know, you're going to allow a circumcision on the Sabbath, but you're not going to allow me to make a man well Uh, Heal a man who had been lame all his life, most of his life. Performing a circumcision was a trivial procedure compared to healing a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. See, the Jews were all about rules and rituals while ignoring what was just and right. And this is the problem with the legalist. He or she majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It was July 4th, 1776, when King George II of England logged the following entry into his journal. Nothing of importance happened today. He didn't realize that across an ocean, a revolution had been born, a movement that would dismantle his empire He had misjudged the events that had occurred in America. Hey, researchers say that 10,000 thoughts go through a human mind every day. Some of you a little more, some of you a little less. But we're constantly thinking, we're constantly analyzing, constantly critiquing, constantly judging. You be careful about drawing conclusions. It's not always what it seems. There's always information we lack. Before we reach a conclusion about a person or a situation, we need heaven's perspective. And if God withholds his viewpoint, then we need to reserve our judgment too. Verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? The Jews who knew of Jesus' opposition... They wondered if his opponents had changed their minds, if they had accepted him as their Messiah. But then they share their reservations. They say, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And this was an unbiblical hurdle to their faith. For some of the rabbis erroneously taught that the Messiah would come suddenly and mysteriously. In other words, you couldn't trace his origins And yet everyone knew Jesus' family tree. Apparently, Jesus' genealogy was common knowledge. His brothers were local. His hometown was Nazareth. There was nothing mysterious about that. How could he be the Messiah? Actually, the Old Testament had spoken volumes concerning the lineage of the Messiah. The scriptures had traced the Messiah back to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out, As he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Now The Jews had traced Jesus' origins to Nazareth, but Jesus says that's not far enough. Go back a little further. For Jesus came from heaven, Again, the idea that Jesus existed prior to his birth, that he had been sent by God, was a claim to deity. Humans don't pre-exist their birth. They begin when they're born. But Jesus had come from heaven. And here Jesus is throwing gas on the fire of those who've opposed him. These Jews distinguished themselves from the world's idolaters as the people who knew the one true God. And now Jesus tells them, him, You do not know. Can you imagine how mad that made them? Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Notice the importance of God's timing. Their threats almost mushroomed into action, but apparently the will of God always trumps the anger of man. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Apparently a warrant gets issued, but an arrest never comes. Once again, it was not God's time. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I will go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion, or the diaspora, was the Hebrew population living outside Israel. and The Pharisees thought Jesus was speaking of going to the expatriated Hebrews, They continue, what is this thing that he said? You seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Jesus was going abroad, but a little further than anybody thought. He had been sent from heaven and he was returning to heaven. Jesus was headed where the Pharisees would never be able to go. How sobering to compare Jesus' promise to these Jews with his promise to the disciples a little later in John. Remember John 14, verse 3, he says to his own men, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's to his followers. But to these unbelieving Jews, he says, where I am, you cannot come. I hope you're a believer in Jesus. I hope you're a follower. If you're not a follower today, you won't be a follower To heaven. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, that great day of the feast, at any Olympic event, any Olympics, we're watching the Olympics right now, I suppose, but at any Olympics, the biggest event is always the closing ceremonies. And so it was with the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day was the big day, the great day of the feast, as it's called. It was the time for the closing ceremony. Here's what would happen. The priest would lead a procession from the temple down the mountain to the Pool of Siloam, south of Jerusalem. There they would draw water, and they would fill their golden vessels. Then they would return to the temple by the way of the water gate. They would circle the altar numerous times, and then they would pour out their pitchers. Their ritual looked both backwards and forwards. For one, it reminded Israel of the miracle that God worked in the wilderness wherein he turned the, uh, opened the rock, he struck the rock, and the water came out. But it also looked forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the people of God in the latter days. And it was immediately after this ceremonial water had been poured out that Jesus, standing there in the temple, offers to make their ritual their reality. The Apostle John tells us in verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This was the day that Jesus shouted. Jesus cried out. Jesus is the rock in our spiritual wilderness. It's from Jesus that the water of the Holy Spirit flows into our hearts. If we come to Jesus, if we open our hearts to Him, if we believe in Him, the water, the white water of spiritual vitality and refreshment bubbles up within us and flows out of us like a mighty river. One of the most amazing sights I've ever seen is Niagara Falls. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? It's amazing the river plummets 176 feet into the river below. Over 100,000 cubic feet per second of water flows over the edge of the falls and crashes onto the rocks below. The spray creates a mist that rises hundreds of feet upwards, can be seen from miles away. When we come to Jesus and when we drink this living water, he creates in us a rush of power, a spray of love that influences us and the people around us. Our life becomes a mist for others to see and a river from which they can drink. Verse 39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It will be after Jesus' death and resurrection that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on his followers. It was in John chapter 20, after they had believed in the risen Christ, that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. This is our Messiah. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? And from the town of Bethlehem, where David was, apparently the crowd, the rank and file Jews, they knew Micah 5 verse 2. They knew the prediction that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But Jesus had been raised in a small town, an insignificant Galilean town named Nazareth. And so there was a division among the people because of him. And this shows the superficiality of their research for All they would have had to do is just a little serious vetting. Just talk to one of his brothers. And they would have known that though Jesus grew up in Galilee, he had actually been born in Bethlehem. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now these were the same temple cops back in verse 32 who were issued the warrant. Now the priests want to know why an arrest hasn't been made. And here was their answer. I love this. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. (laughs) I mean, they had the authorization. They had the orders. They couldn't go through with it. It was obvious to even Jesus' critics that Jesus was more than a mere man. These were temple cops just doing their job, but they had to back off. They had to back down due to the authority that they sensed in Jesus. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Can you hear their snobbery? The Pharisees, the chief priests, they were just snobs. They looked down their nose at the common folk. These aristocrats felt spiritually superior to the ignorant masses. Here they even reassure themselves that none of their own is broken ranks and become a follower of Jesus. But that wasn't true. You remember the rabbi that Jesus instructed back in chapter 3? A man named Nicodemus? And speaking of him, verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now here in Nicodemus, he pushes to secure for Jesus a fair trial. He knows what's up. And he knows that Jesus is getting railroaded. He doesn't like it. According to John 19, verse 38, Nicodemus and another Jewish leader, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, were both disciples of Jesus. And John says something interesting about Joseph. He says, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Joseph was a secret disciple, and so was Nicodemus. Here, Nicodemus, he goes to bat for justice. Oh, Jesus deserves to speak for himself, and he did. But sadly, Nicodemus stops tragically short of expressing his personal faith in Jesus as his Messiah. But we'll find you can't be a secret disciple for long. Nicodemus and Joseph eventually come out of the closet. Verse 52. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now the Pharisees, they try to justify their rejection of Jesus with their prejudice toward Galileans. Jews from a Jerusalem assumed that backwoods Galileans were the kind of people that married their cousins and kept dogs, hound dogs, under their front porch and drank moonshine on the weekends and had tire swings in their yard, you know, like folks in Alabama. Alabama. There you go. And they rationalize. Man, how can a prophet come from Galilee? Galilee produces bumpkins, not men of God. But here the Jews reveal their own ignorance of the scriptures. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 lists Jonah's hometown as where? Gath-Hefer. It was a village three miles northeast of Nazareth. Jonah was a Galilean. Remember, too, where Jesus made his headquarters in Galilee? It was the city of Capernaum, which means village of Nahum. Kephar-Nahum means village of Nahum. Apparently, Nahum, too, was a Galilean. There were several prophets that were from Galilee. Once again, the Jews didn't do their homework. Now, chapter 7 ends, and chapter 8 begins. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus exits the temple. He crosses the Kidron Valley. If you go to Jerusalem with us, you'll be able to do the same. Climb the Mount of Olives. It could be Jesus and his men camped for the night. They had a favorite camping site on the Mount of Olives. It was, called, it was a garden called Gethsemane. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is now officially over. And usually the pilgrims head home after the feast. But apparently, quite a crowd had decided to hang out and spend another day with Jesus. Verse 3 tells us, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, before we read the following story, we need to first address a problem. There is a controversy whether this story of the woman taken in adultery actually belongs in our Bible. As a matter of fact, if you're reading the NIV, the nearly inspired, I mean the the NIV. If you're reading the NIV or one of the other modern translations, there is a preface to chapter 8 that reads as follows. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John seven fifty three through 8, verse 11. And to me, that statement is misleading. Yes, there are accounts. There are some Greek manuscripts that omit this account. But the story is in other very old manuscripts, and it does get referred to by many of the early church fathers. As a matter of fact, a man named Papias mentions this story as early as 100 A.D. It was St. Augustine who explained why this passage was left out of some of the biblical manuscripts Augustine said that a few of the copyists feared that Jesus' kindness toward the immoral woman could be misconstrued as condoning adultery. Thus, the copyists feared uh, the, a misunderstanding and, and apparently some of them left it out. They stumbled over God's grace, evidently. But I like what scholar F.B. Meyer says about John chapter 8, verses 1-11. through 11. He says this, There is no possibility of accounting for its existence, except that the incident really took place. It reveals in our Savior's character a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred of sin so intense, an insight into human hearts so searching that it's impossible to suppose that the mind of man could have conceived it, or that the hand of man could have invented it. And I couldn't agree more. To me, the scholarship proves and the Holy Spirit testifies that this wonderful account of forgiveness belongs in our Bibles. Now verse 3 again. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery In the very act. And it makes you wonder how they caught her in the very act. Where was the man? Last time I checked, it took two people to commit adultery. Where's the man? Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 is very clear. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The fact that the man is conspicuously missing concludes this must have been a setup. This woman had been trapped in order to spring a trap on Jesus. Now Jesus has been teaching in the temple. When angry, growling voices are heard, they're getting closer. Suddenly the crowd parts like the Red Sea and up stomps a troop of bloodthirsty Pharisees dragging this Semi-naked, frightened woman. They sling her at Jesus like a queasy new dad tossing a smelly diaper into the trash. They spew accusations. They spit out judgments. They poke their fingers at this woman like they're thrusting her with swords. And the woman, what a sight she must have been. She's lying on the cold floor in a fetal position. Tears have cut trenches in her heavy makeup. At a distance, she might look pretty, but up close, this woman looks worn and haggard. She's been used and abused before. She's been objectified by men and treated like a commodity. It was actress Mae West who once said, I've been in more laps than a napkin. Well, this woman could have said the same. Years of abuse had ruined her body and worse, it had hardened and encrusted her soul. She was embittered. She probably hated everybody. Oh, she especially hated these self-righteous Pharisees who were now shouting at Jesus. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Understand the dilemma Jesus is in. If he turns this woman loose, if he just forgives her and lets her go, it would have been viewed as a flagrant disregard of the law. People would have accused Jesus of being soft on sin. On the other hand, if Jesus picks up a rock to stone this woman, he has destroyed his reputation as a friend of sinners and as a man of mercy. Either way, the Jewish leaders think they've outfoxed Jesus. They got him now. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And notice, it wasn't just what he wrote that was significant. It's what he did not, don't miss this, it's what he did not hear that's equally significant. He didn't hear their accusations. He didn't hear their condemnation. And friends, Jesus is still deaf to the railings and the judgments and the accusations people hurl at sinners like us when we put our trust in him. Isn't that beautiful? He just doesn't hear them. These Pharisees were snarling. They were demanding an answer, and Jesus just ignored them. He bends down, and he starts doodling in the dirt. What he wrote, we don't know. But the word translated "wrote" is the Greek word katagrapho, which means to write against. And we assume from that that Jesus wasn't listing somebody's positive attributes. He's writing against. Most likely, he was writing accusations against these Jewish leaders, those that wanted to stone the woman. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, What genius, what grace. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the dirt. One Greek manuscript in which this story does appear adds a footnote. It says that Jesus wrote in the dirt the sins of each one of her accusers standing in that circle. Perhaps he started writing down the names of the Pharisees' girlfriends and prostitutes and mistresses that they'd seen recently. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Rocks that had been tightly drawn, that had been in tightly drawn fists, started dropping one at a time. The men holding them had decided to go home. Then, Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And what a scene this must have been. Just Jesus and the woman. When she was thrown at Jesus' feet, there was hate in her eyes. She hated the hypocritical Pharisees. She hated men in general. All her life, she had been peeled like an orange, sucked out her sweetness, and then they'd thrown away the skin. Yet this man, this man was different. She'd heard of Jesus by this point, who hadn't? But She would have never believed a man so holy could be so merciful. She's standing there looking right at him. She knows he's pure and righteous. And yet she senses that he really does care about her. For the first time in her life, perhaps, She has found a man who cares about her as a person rather than just wants to treat her as an object. She has felt the lust of men, but this feels like love. This is a whole new experience for this woman. She's tasting of forgiveness. When Jesus had raised himself, himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's ironic there was only one person in the crowd that day who had never sinned. Only one person qualified to cast a stone, yet he chose not to. Instead, Jesus chose to forgive the woman rather than condemn her. The pharisaical remedy for sin was to destroy the sinner. Jesus also hated sin, but he loved the sinner. The sin solution for the Pharisee was a stone, but the sin solution for Jesus was a stick of wood, a cross. Let me make one more point before we move on. Let's make sure we remember this story not only when we are the woman in need of forgiveness, but let's remember it when we are the ones with the stones in our hands. If Jesus can forgive this woman with the sordid reputation, why can't you forgive your guilty party? And then Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you, Go and sin no more. And I'm sure she obeyed. This moment marked a turning point in her life. You know, love disarms a cynical attitude and it breaks open a padlocked heart. Jesus restored this woman. He restored to her value and virtue. Hey, use someone, take from someone and you cheapen that person. But when you save someone, And you add value to their life. You upgrade their sense of self-worth. What Jesus did was give this woman a new life. And I'm sure she became one of his most devoted followers. Now remember, all this happened on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the foremost features of this feast were the lights that decorated the temple. Giant candelabras were set up in the temple courts to remind the people of the fire by night. You remember the cloud by day and the fire by night? The fire by night was the presence of God that led the people through the wilderness. This all fit in with the Feast of Tabernacles. And these menorahs were enormous. Their bases were 100 feet high. The trunk of the menorah split into four branches, each with large cups at the top for the oil. Young priests would climb ladders to refill the the oil. They would use their worn out garments as wicks for the lamps. The light from these menorahs was so bright that all Jerusalem glowed in the dark, in the nighttime during the Feast of Tabernacles. Each night during Tabernacles, people would gather in the temple court. Men would wave torches. The people danced to music. It was an all-night celebration. Happened every night. But on the day after the feast, the lights were snuffed out. And it was probably as the Levites were disassembling these special feast day menorahs and cleaning up the debris from the nights before, that Jesus stood up in the temple and he made another declaration. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It was in the morning now. Perhaps the sun was rising above the eastern wall of the temple. Jesus may have pointed to the sunrise and declared, I am the light of the world. Jesus is brighter than those ritual menorahs. Psalm 84.11, Malachi 4 verse 2 depicted the sun as an Old Testament idiom for Yahweh, for God. Here again, Jesus is claiming to be God think of it it was actually jesus who hovered over the camp of israel he was the fire by day he was the glory by night or the, the glory by day and the fire by night he's the one who led them through the wilderness jesus is the light of israel and here he says of the whole world you know just as our solar system has but one sun likewise the universe has but one god one source of heat and energy and light and life and warmth. And if our sun were ever to burn out, life could no longer exist. Likewise, apart from Jesus, human beings fail to truly experience what life was meant to be. I read recently where the Seattle Zoo has an exhibit known as the Nocturnal House. Even during the day, the zoologists, they keep the house dark and they display the exhibits under black lights. They showcase the various animals that come out only at night. They have vampire bats that suck on bottles of blood. I mean, strange animals come out in the nighttime, and strange actions go on in the darkness. I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, nothing good happens after midnight. (laughs) you be home by 12 o'clock, nothing good happens after midnight. It's much safer to live your life in the light of day and this is especially true spiritually live under the influence of jesus and he drives out the darkness and he sends those evil critters scurrying back for their holes verse 13 the pharisees therefore said to him you bear witness of yourself your witness is not true now remember the jews said that it was by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word would be established In a Jewish court, a single accusation could never convict. But Jesus fires back. It is also written in your law, note he knew the law better than they did, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. If you need two witnesses to believe in me, how about God the Father and God the Son? Those are two pretty reliable witnesses. Remember at the end of chapter 5, Jesus presented six witnesses that testified of his deity. Do you remember what they were? Himself, John the Baptist, his miracles, his father in heaven, the scriptures, and finally Moses. Six witnesses. Jesus only needed two. Verse 19, then they said to him, where is your father? And you can bet they said it with a sneer. In other words, they're asking Jesus, who's your daddy? Apparently, the Jews had researched Jesus' background, and they scoffed at this idea of a virgin birth. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You know, folks who know both me and my dad, they say that we look so much alike, they have no doubt that I'm his son. Of course, I've never thought my dad was that good looking, but <laughs> if that's what people say, so be it. But this was definitely the case with Jesus and his father. If the Jews had truly known God, after they had taken one look at Jesus, they would have been convinced of the resemblance. Jesus and the father are one. Verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury As he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Once again, John makes clear, God's timing is dictating Jesus' destiny. And God's timing is dictating yours as well. Then Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Again, those who don't follow Jesus won't follow him to heaven. And those who follow him now won't stop at death. We'll follow him into eternity. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? When Jesus spoke of his death, those listening tried to excuse him, accuse him of threatening suicide. See, understanding Judaism, the lowest levels of Hades were reserved for folks who took their own lives. These Jews were so determined to assign Jesus to the worst possible damnation that they missed the one that they that they tried to play on this fact that he must be talking about suicide. In reality, they missed the one verdict they really should have heard. Remember what Jesus said? You will die in your sin. Verse 23. And he said to them, "You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world." You know, Jesus was a genuine alien. He was a real extraterrestrial. He came to earth from heaven above. His wisdom was heavenly. His mind was divine. He had God's love and God's nature. Jesus was from a different dimension. Neither his origination nor his destination was here below. He came from God and returned to God. Jesus continues. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And here it is, friends, from Jesus' own mouth, the penalty for not believing in him is death. Physical death, yes, but most importantly, spiritual death. And it doesn't matter how moral you are, how religious you are, how spiritual, how benevolent, how kind, or how good you are. If you don't believe that Jesus is he, you too will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. My message hasn't changed, he says. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity is found throughout the Old Testament. But as is the case today, the Jews missed it. They didn't understand that God the Son spoke of God the Father. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, he's talking about his crucifixion, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. On the cross, the world will see why the Father sent His Son. It all became clear when Jesus was lifted up. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. And here's why we know Jesus lived a sinless life. He tells us that he did, in all that he did, he pleased the Father. And this makes you appreciate our Lord all the more, doesn't it? I mean, imagine what it took for Jesus to actually say, I always do those things that please the Father. That means he trained and tamed his tongue. Never a harsh word, never an idle word, never a trivial word. His ear had been tuned to hear every divine whisper spoken in his direction. His heart was always fixed on his father, never distracted. His mind never entertained a stray or sinful thought. What an example to us. He always did those things that pleased the Father. The least we could do is try. And that's why verse 30 is no surprise. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. As that Jewish police officer had said earlier, no man ever spoke like this man.